Smith, Senior Interview Editor with the Georgetown Public Policy Review. And today I'm happy to announce the beginning of a new series, the Uncertainty Series um, for the GPPR podcast, where we'll bring in different guests to talk about uncertainty in different fields. And our first guest in the Uncertainty Series is Chris Liu. Chris Liu is a senior fellow at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia and senior strategy advisor at Fiscal Note. Uh, Chris served as the Deputy Secretary of Labor and White House Cabinet Secretary during the Obama administration. Uh, Jake and I spoke with Chris uh, to discuss uh, uncertainty in labor, uh, to discuss his time on campus and coming back uh, to visit with the Baker Center recently, uh, as well as you know, what does it look like to work in government from a local, state, and national level. We hope you enjoy, and stay tuned for other editions of the GPPR podcast. Time, Chris Liu, we really appreciate it. Uh, we're really excited to have this episode of the GPPR podcast. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, yourself, your experience? Um, and we're, we're really curious about the talk you had with the Baker Center with Lisa Brown. Um, so can you just give a quick introduction sure. for our, our listeners? Well, I have just completed 20 years of government service. I am trained as a lawyer. Um, that didn't really take. So about 20 years ago, uh, I basically started in government, and I spent eight years working uh, for the House, what is now the House Oversight Committee, uh, then went off to work for uh, John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004. When Barack Obama was elected to the U.S. Senate, I started his legislative director, ran his presidential transition in 2008, and then spent the first four years of the Obama administration as the White House Cabinet Secretary, which meant that I was his liaison to the federal departments and agencies. Uh, took a year off, and including spending time as a senior fellow at the McCord School, and then came back as the Deputy Secretary of Labor, which I did for three years. Uh, I now split my time between a tech startup called Fiscal Note uh, in Washington, D.C. I'm also a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center of Public Affairs and do lots of other things. Along busy, the way. busy guy. It's, it, it's, it's a good mix of work. Yeah. And how, how was your experience at Georgetown the other day? being back on campus, talking to students. So uh, Lisa Brown, um, who is the general counsel at Georgetown and is a uh, old friend from uh, the Obama administration, and I talked to a group of, um, of students uh, about uh, that the Baker Center had put together about you know leadership with the lessons we've learned from our careers. We talked about current events, the Trump administration, and you know it's always fun. Uh, to be on campus and uh, having been a fellow at uh, Georgetown, it's it's especially fun to be back here. Mm-hmm. So each year, uh, the Georgetown Public Policy Review, we have a theme. That theme is this year is uncertainty, following last year's theme of disruption, which we think <laughs> kind of plays really well into the, the political scheme. In, in a complete labor market sense, can you kind of talk about how uncertainty is being played out, well, the policies, especially during your time, uh, how uncertainty, because it's, it's a natural part of the market. I mean, is, is uncertain what trends are coming? Uh, how, do, how do policymakers kind of address uncertainty in, in a labor sense? Well, you know, from the labor perspective, uh, labor markets are always changing. And we can talk a little bit about the advent of artificial intelligence and what that means. But it's important to provide some context. This country has gone through two industrial revolutions. We've gone through a computer revolution and the early, late 1960s, early 1970s, obviously the internet revolution of the uh, 1990s, and now we have uh, artificial intelligence. And so 
Uh, labor markets are never static, they're always changing, but it's important to understand what that means for workers. And I think as you see this play out in the 2016 presidential election, and it's not only the Trump voters, but it's the Sanders voters as well, mm -hmm. there's a level of economic instability in this country right now. And it, it's not only income inequality, but it's also stagnant wages. And people have a sense that the system is rigged against them and that they're working harder and not getting further ahead. This idea that we always talk about the American dream that uh, people can get an education, work hard, get a good job, pay for their kids' education, save for their retirement, buy a home. That American dream is increasingly out of reach for far too many people in this country. And you know, um, we are moving more towards the haves and the have-nots. We're moving more towards uh, a division between urban and suburban areas that by and large are doing very well all around the country, red states and blue states, uh, and rural areas which haven't done as well. And so the uncertainty, the instability uh, is happening everywhere. And frankly, policymakers in Washington and really around the country haven't been able to get their arms around this as well. You know, what do we do for workers who have a high school education? And 20, 30 years ago, those those workers with a high school education could have gotten a good paying factory job, uh, a union, I'd say, a union mm -hmm. factory job, uh, and raised a family on that. Those jobs just don't exist anymore. And as that manufacturing sector has moved out of the United States, a lot of the jobs have now shifted to retail. And obviously with the internet and online buying, a lot of those jobs are shifting out of retail as well. And so there's a whole group of people in this country who we have not figured out how to uh, lift up, and, and that's really one of the challenges for policymakers right now. Do you fear the movement towards what, what I call like a, a new Luddite society where walls, literal walls in some situations, but trade walls are, are going up, um, uh, move towards um, internal systems and anti-free trade? Is, is that a, a concern of yours? You know, I, I, am a, I believe in free trade. Uh, I believe in fair trade, but I certainly believe in free trade as well, and you've seen this play out. You know, pretty dramatically over the last, um, well, over the last week, um, as uh, as as Trump has gone overseas, uh, you know, you've now seen the countries that would have been part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, with the United States now breaking off and starting their own trade alliance, and you see that the effect of that on uh, producers of goods and products. Um, good example is um, U.S. beef. U.S. beef has a I believe a 50% tariff in Japan, uh, you know, and 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 once uh, Japan uh, executes an agreement with Australia, uh, Australian beef will go into the Japanese market at a much lower tariff rate, and that will hurt U.S. farmers. Or there was a a pretty interesting article in the New York Times a couple of days ago about uh, lobstermen in in Canada versus Maine, because Canada has a trade agreement with the U EU. Uh, Canadian lobsters can get into the European market at a lower tariff than U.S. lobsters, uh, which is a problem for Maine lobstermen. And so um, I think people understandably fear the disruptive benefits of trade, or the disruptive costs to trade without understanding the benefits that come along with it. And it's not only cheaper goods that we all have, but it's the ability of uh, U.S. Um, producers to sell their products overseas, which then creates jobs here in the United mm -hmm. States.
Right, but don't you have the reverse effect? I know the Trump administration has been looking at steel tariffs, for mm -hmm. example, and other you know tariffs, you know, uh, Secretary of Commerce, uh, Wilbur Ross, etc. You know, looking at those types of things. What kind of thinking goes into that? You know, as we're trying to be less global, more lack of a better term, isolationist, um, you know, and walk some of that back. Right. You, you know, look, I mean, I, I, I qualified my support for free trade by saying it's also fair trade as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's um, a lot of evidence out there that other countries are uh, illegally, improperly subsidizing their own products and then dumping them here on the United States. Uh, we saw that during the Obama administration uh, with, for instance, I think solar panels that came from China as well. And, you know, when you are competing against state-run enterprises, uh, it's always a challenge when you're in a free market environment. And so um, I am not, uh, in, in, while I'm a supporter of trade, I'm, I'm in no way a supporter of trade that, that um, is, is done on unfair playing conditions that disadvantages American workers. And I think we also need to understand, uh, you know, there are disruptions that come along with trade. And when that happens, uh, we need to ensure that the workers that are displaced from those jobs um, are able to transition into new jobs. That's a program that we managed out of the Department of Labor, but it wasn't funded in the way it should have been funded, and it frankly needs to be a more broad-based effort. The, the follow-up on uh, a related point, do you think people put too much faith in the statistics coming out of the Labor Department, like the unemployment rate, and when they see that and they couple that with an all-time stock market. So it's a very low unemployment rate, yeah. and it's a very record high every week, it seems, stock market. And a majority of Americans, they don't benefit from that. You, you think there's there's another, like an alternative statistic that people should be looking at? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> the biggest culprit of this is, is, is the president who uh, dismissed these uh, statistics as bogus and fake when he was running for president, and now seems to tweet about them every single day. Claiming they were some claim, 20, yeah, claim 30, 40 percent. Yeah. Look, I, I, let, let's take a look at this. Uh, unemployment rate is 4.1 percent. That is at a you know uh, at, at a low since the, the since the Great Recession. That's unquestionably good news. Um, it's also important to look at um, some of the other measures: labor force participation, the percentage of which is essentially the percentage of working age people that are in the labor force, I think is around 62, 63%. Um, so you've got uh, about 40% of the people who could work not in the market. Now, again, that's slightly misleading. Um, that includes people like the two of you who um, are in school. Uh, it includes people who are retired. It includes people who are stay-at-home mothers. That being said, that, that number is lower than it has been in that, you know, 30, 40 years. So there are people who could be working who are not working. That's a fair point. The other important point to look at is wage growth in this country. Uh, it's about 2.4% right now. And certainly positive wage growth is always a good thing. The truth is um, when you account for inflation and then you account for the fact that wages have essentially been stagnant for the last several decades, this is what creates the economic insecurity in this country. Because for most people in this country, their wages have been flat while the cost of their rent, energy prices, groceries, whatever, have all gone up. That's why they don't feel like this economic recovery has really affected them. Then let's look at the stock market. Uh, president loves touting the stock markets, and certainly that's a good thing, and it means that people that have money in the market are probably feeling a little better about themselves and might be spending a little bit more, which is a good thing. But recognize that only 50% of the people in this country own stock, and that's not just individual stock. That means having 
stock in their 401k. So only 50% of the people are directly benefiting from the increase in the stock market. And it's not even an equal level of benefit. 20% of the country, people in this country have 80%, hold 80% mm -hmm. of the stock. So when you simply tout the stock market gains, when you simply look at the unemployment rate, those are important measures, but they're not the only measures. And then at the flip side, when you look at poverty rate, you look at the level of un uninsured uh, for healthcare, that's starting to uh, tick back up again. That's the real insecurity that people are feeling in their lives right now. Yeah, so I want to circle back to a couple of the points around kind of, I'll call them social inequality measures. You know, we talked about, you know, poverty rate. We talked about, you know, the lack of wage growth, you know, which is leading to, you know, further divide between, you know, the top 1% and the lower 50%, uh, et, et cetera. What things from a policy perspective or what tactics can we put in place to, you know, encourage companies to, you know, for wage growth, to think through how do we get more people, you know, having funds to live, have their basic needs, to have some of their wants to spend back in the economy and stimulate? So one of the puzzling things about this recovery is that with the unemployment rate being as low as it has been for really the last couple of years, one would have expected a tightening labor market that would have uh, increased wages. That's just basically Econ 101. That hasn't happened. And in a sense, it's because of the way some economists believe that the overall economy is changing. Um, it has a lot to do with globalization. It has a lot to do with productivity gains because of technology as well. It, there's not an easy solution. I, I mean, I think there are a couple important policies that we ought to adopt. I mean, I think, first of all, we ought to increase the minimum wage in this country. Minimum wage has not been raised uh, in eight years right now. Um, it's 725, and that's way too low, um, really, in any part of the country. Um, that's one thing we could do. Um, we ought to make a greater investment into job training in this country. What's interesting is uh, the Labor Department always puts out a statistic every month about the number of job openings. In this country, there are about six million job openings in this country right now. And you know, when I was the deputy secretary of labor and I traveled around the country, I talked to employers who wanted to hire but couldn't find people with the right skills. And I talked to many job seekers who wanted jobs but didn't have the right skills. We have a mismatch. Some people say it's a skills gap. Some people say it's a mismatch. Some people say it's because wages aren't high enough to attract people into certain industries. Whatever it is. Uh, we aren't training people for the jobs of the 21st century. And what's important to recognize is in this changing economy, it's not training people one time, whether it's in high school, community colleges, four-year colleges, whatever, but it's creating a lifelong culture of learning. I always give the example, like when I graduated from college and law school, there was no internet. So if you had told me uh, you can train to be a Google coder, first of all, I wouldn't have known what either Google or coding was, but I can't anticipate what the jobs of the next 10 or 20 years are going to be, but I know they're going to be different than what it is now and that they're gonna require a different level of training. So we need to ensure that no matter what you've trained for, there's always a mechanism in place to ensure that your skills are constantly being improved along the way. And, and uh, something else that I think that goes, and I'm, I'm really curious to hear your, your experience traveling around the country, seeing different needs in different areas is, Americans are becoming less mobile mm -hmm. than they are. And, and that, that must be a tremendously difficult yeah, it is, uh, it is, again, one of the curious uh, things that have happened. Traditionally in this country, uh, when there are uh, tough economic times, the Depression, 
uh, people moved to places where there were jobs. Mm -hmm. You also saw, you know, post-World War II, kind of a powerful movement, in particular among African-Americans from the South to the industrialized cities of the North. Uh, we as a country right now are, are probably capable of more economic mobility than any other time in history. And there's probably less economic, I mean, I'm sorry, there's less geographic mobility mm -hmm. than there's ever been. Uh, people don't move. And I think it's one of the challenges we have where, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time on the West Coast in Seattle, there are lots of job openings in Seattle. Uh, and if you want to go find a job, you should move to Seattle, but people don't. Um, and I also don't know that the answer to our economic problems is simply to tell people to go move to places where there are jobs, because then what you're basically doing is leaving behind large swaths of the country. So it is, again, you're right, it's a curious thing we have right now. When you were traveling around and say you, a uh, town in Appalachia had unique labor challenges that a town in the West or the East Coast didn't have, how, how at, at the labor department, I'm curious, how, how do you aim and specifically design policies that will help all communities that have different kind of issues? I mean, the old, like the old mining towns, the old right. coal mining towns, like they, they, they're displaced workers that don't have other kind of right. opportunities. So how, how do we kind of help everyone, though each kind of community has a unique need? And, and this is the important part, is that when you do workforce development, which is what the Department of Labor does, you can't do that in a vacuum. It has to be done hand in glove with economic development. Uh, you can't just train people for jobs if no one's going to hire people uh, with those skill sets. So uh, in Appalachia, one of the great programs that we had a chance to see with co was called Coal to Code. They were training laid off coal miners to become computer coders. One of the wonderful things about that is that you can be a computer coder, you could certainly move to Silicon Valley and be a coder, uh, but you can work remotely as well. Uh, but it's basically working with companies to say, hey, there's a pool of people here who are qualified to work uh, and have the skills and you ought to consider hiring them. And so it is, yes, I mean, uh, so when you see it done well, you've got the economic development folks and the workforce development folks working hand in glove. The problem is in far too many places right now, what passes for, what many localities do to lure companies in is they provide huge tax incentives to come move your you know, uh, factory to a certain part of the country. And the problem is once those manufacturers move there, they find that, hey, we, we can't find enough trained workers. And so the, the smart companies are basically saying, hey, it's not just about tax incentives. It's can we find a pool of qualified workers? Mm -hmm. uh, and so again, another reason why this all needs to be done in a coordinated way. Absolutely. And, and you kind of touched on the, the pipeline. Uh, I was at a um, Jobs for American Graduates event uh, where Secretary Acosta and I think we'll be speaking on apprenticeships. And I yes. think that this is, this is uh, one of the, the rare instances where I think there's broad bipartisan support. Apprenticeships are not a traditional American uh, establishment. Mm -hmm. Everyone always points to the Nordic countries, Germany in particular, and they, they have a system built. There is, I think it's antithetical to the American spirit that kids in 9th, 10th, 11th grade have a pathway chosen for them in some certain... But do, do you think it's, it's possible for us to fully adopt those kind of younger training programs like apprenticeships or, you know, broad internship programs for high school students at a younger age, because th that is a, a solution to, in, in one way, a solution to the labor supply that you spoke of. It's exactly right. I mean, it, 
the issue that I probably spent the most amount of time on when I was the Deputy Secretary of Labor with Apprenticeships, I traveled to Germany, I traveled to Switzerland to look at their models of how they do it. There is a centuries-old system of apprenticeships in big parts of Europe where they allow students at age 16, so in high school, to make a decision about what whether they want to go the university route or whether they want to uh, you know, go the apprenticeship route. And, and if you think about it, you know, we don't even let 16 year olds in this country decide what movie they're going to see, much less make a decision about what career they're going to pursue. And in Switzerland, for example, you make a choice at age 16, you spend the last couple of years of high school, not only training, uh, but also going to school to finish your high school degree. And then you might uh, continue training and you'll get a associate's degree or their equivalent at a community college. And then assuming you finish the program and you've you've been successful at it, you get a full-time job. But what's fascinating about it, two fascinating aspects, uh, the apprenticeships that they have in Switzerland are not just traditional blue-collar trades. They're white-collar jobs as well. That's distinction mm -hmm. one. Distinction two is there are many on-ramps and off-ramps to apprenticeships in Switzerland. So you can go the apprenticeship route and you could do it for a couple of years. Then you could jump back on the university track, get a university degree, uh, and then learn how to become a manager at the factory that you were just working at. The problem here in the United States is apprenticeships have largely been uh, in the in in the trades, the blue collar professions, and it's in part because unions put a significant investment into training future workers, which is fantastic. But it's also been basically a one way street. You start um, down the, the path of a trade, and it's a it's a, a good paying profession, but you have no ability to get off that tr uh, track to do something else, and that's. One of the things that we tried to do at the Department of Labor, and one of the reasons why President Obama uh, called to, for an, a doubling of the number of apprenticeships in mm -hmm. this country, and you know, fortunately, the Trump administration has taken this on. They haven't really put money behind their initiative, uh, but it is one of the nonpartisan, bipartisan aspects about workforce training. What is important, I think, two two things that need to be made clear. I think there is remains in the United States a cultural issue with parents both allowing their kids to make decisions about their career and parents um, saying um, that, hey, my kid um, is going to go to a community college or is going to go to a vocational high school mm -hmm. as opposed to a four-year de college degree. And I think that's still there's still a stigma associated to that, which I think is um, changing, but I still think it's there. The other thing that I'm proud about that we did at the Department of Labor is that we signed apprenticeship agreements with a number of white collar, um, for a number of white collar uh, professions. So, uh, you know, um, you know, I was in um, uh, the suburbs of Chicago. I signed an agreement with Zurich Insurance Company, um, and they were basically creating an apprenticeship program for claims adjusters and underwriters, white collar professions. Uh, I signed an agreement with Amazon. Uh, for coders as an apprenticeship. I did one with Hartford Insurance Companies. Uh, we've signed one with an energy trading company in Houston. So you're starting to see apprenticeships not only grow, but also grow in white collar jobs. Yeah, so I think that's a good point to, to talk about. Uh, how much of the role of corporate America should they be playing in the viewpoint, working with policymakers about the future of work, the future of labor? You know, how do we get those types of things in? Because it seems like that's the fix, you know, is that government can say, hey, we are concerned about, you know, our 
you know, aging labor force or our changing labor force as technology, as globalization changes. But a lot of companies, corporate America drives that. They drive that automation. They're driving artificial intelligence. They're driving globalization. Should we be leaning more on them in this public-private, you know, setup, if you will, to kind of drive this? Yeah, absolutely. You can't do effective workforce development without working closely with employers. And the truth of the matter is, as much federal dollars as the U.S. Department of Labor puts out for tr job training, uh, that is dwarfed by the amount that the private sector spends on training their employees. And, you know, you don't want to, I mean, we used to say that the old way of training people for jobs was train and pray. We train people for jobs and pray that they get them. <laughs> I would rather train people for jobs that actually exist and are going to exist. And you can't do that unless you do that working with employers. That being said, the problem right now we have is that training people for jobs costs money. And, you know, there's, we can talk a little bit more about short-termism, but perpetually in the drive for companies to make their quarterly earnings, putting money up front to train workers is cuts against your bottom line. And so we need to get to a, uh, again, a cultural change among corporate America that training people is an upfront investment that will reap benefits at the back end. And, you know, uh, I, I see a lot of companies that do subscribe to that theory. I'm, I'm curious now transitioning in a reflective pose, not, not post-government work and being in the private sector, looking back to your time in the public sector, is, is there anything specifically about the job itself that you miss or that you totally can live without <laughs> for the rest of your life? You know, serving in the Obama administration was really a uh, the honor of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I've known uh, Barack Obama. He and I are law school classmates. So I've known him for now 25 years and having a chance to have seen his political growth, working on two presidential campaigns for him, serving in his administration was really uh, the honor of a lifetime. You know, um, government is hard. Um, it's 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 hard in a uh, environment where uh, you're always challenged with not having enough money to do the work that you want to do. You're always challenged by time and never having enough time to make the impactful changes. But you know, for people who want to make a difference in the lives. Uh, of their fellow citizens. There's no greater way, no better way to do that than serving in government. And it's been the thrill of a lifetime. And, you know, I, if I have the opportunity to serve again, I would certainly do that. Um, but I'm also, um, it's also the time for other young people to step up and continue to pursue public service. And, and to those, those young aspiring policymakers, especially at the, at the McCord School, uh, any, any advice for them looking into uh, entering into public service or even on the private side, especially with regards to the labor policy. Anything you you would tell a, a young Chris Liu getting into <laughs> to work right now to keep in, in the forefront? I think for a lot of young people considering public service, they're naturally drawn to Washington, D.C., which is where we're sitting right now, and, uh, and that's understandable. If I were starting out in government right now, I would probably pursue state and local uh, government service. Hmm. Uh, you know, I think you have a chance to make a greater impact in the lives of people. And I think, you know, Washington, unfortunately, and it's not a, a, a Trump administration phenomena. We are, um, we are handcuffed right now in Washington by gridlock and partisanship. And short of a crises, we don't act fast enough to address the major problems uh, that are facing our country. Yet in cities and states all around the country are actually addressing the issues we've been talking about. It is notable that 29 states in the District of Columbia have a higher minimum wage than uh, uh, 
than the federal level, that you've got a half dozen states that have uh, paid sick leave policies. You have three or four states that have paid family leave policies. You've got states and cities that are leading the charge on climate change policy in the absence of uh, action from the federal government. So on basically any issue that you want to focus on, probably with the exception of national security, you can work on those issues at the state and local level. You can make a greater change that will eventually translate at some point down the road into hopefully a consensus on federal action. And I think you can make a bigger difference in people's lives. I also say this though, like public service isn't just working in the government. It's working for nonprofits, it's working in philanthropy. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, one could be in the private sector and be engaged in public service activities. Uh, I sit on the board of a trade association called the American Sustainable Business Council, which is about a quarter million companies that believe in pro-environment, pro-labor practices. And so uh, they're helping to drive the change that um, helps improve sustainability in our country in the absence of federal action. Yeah, so, and just to, uh, on our ending note, you know, you talked a lot about better to work state and local government. I think that's really good advice, something I don't think we've heard on our lovely podcast series. But you also talked about the gridlock, you know, in, in Washington. Any ideas of how we would, you know, bring that gap closer and not be so polarizing and divisive as we are today? Yeah, you know, I have, um, I'm a hardcore Democrat. Um, I believe passionately in progressive ideas. But I have Republican friends, and and I can sit across the table from them and have a reasoned uh, debate about healthcare policy or tax reform, uh, and I can disagree with them without being disagreeable, without demonizing them. Uh, I do think, you know, probably the listeners of this podcast, many of them fall within this category of kind of informed uh, public citizens, um, but I do think we need to continue to push these ideas outside of places like Georgetown and Washington, D.C. Um, it's hard. Um, you know, when I um, travel around the country, uh, wherever I am, I don't, if I'm staying in a hotel, I don't buy the New York Times. I don't um, buy USA Today. I look at the local newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I'm startled some days by how little national, international news is covered in most local papers. Certainly watching local TV newscasts, uh, it is hard to... Um, really understand what's happening outside of one little area. And so I think it's important, again, I think this goes back to why I believe in state and local government. I think we need some of our best and brightest to spread these ideas outside of Washington, D.C. Um, I also think it's important for us to continue to look for ways to inform people about the important issues facing our country and our world right now. And that's challenging in a world in which uh, the media landscape has evolved significantly and, you know, as importantly, this kind of crazy social media world we live in right now where uh, people get as much of their news from Facebook as they do from the mm -hmm. New York Times or the Washington Post. And, and just one, one more question, uh, going, going back to uncertainty and into, into labor policy, uh, there is a uncertain effect, what one may argue an uncertain effect in the academic literature about the effect specifically of the minimum wage. And it, this kind of ties into in certain mostly rural areas and a, a lot with the supporters of the current president, those supporters vehemently oppose policies that would actually disproportionately affect them, rolling back so, certain social safety nets. That, that is in and of itself a result of media bubbles, um, of you know, being disagreeable while disagreeing. How, how does that 
start to be rolled back? And the, does something like the, the Labor Department have a role to play in that a responsibility? And even outside of government, how do, how do we kind of start having a dialogue with those people who are most vulnerable, who these policies are being crafted and created right. for? Look, the act, I mean, we could have a whole whole separate podcast episode about the minimum wage, but you know, the academic research overwhelmingly shows that a modest increase in the minimum wage has no net effect on job creation. Now, again, we what is a modest increase and whether $15 an hour is reasonable in Alabama, I'll leave that to other people to discuss. I don't think it helps things when you've got a president who has criticized um, science, data, facts, researches, fake news through an entire campaign and completely dismisses parts of the media that he doesn't agree with as being fake. Uh, and that, and so, look, I mean, you can basically find anything you want to on the internet mm -hmm. to support your underlying views, but it does require people being informed consumers of information and. Boy, we could have a whole a whole conversation about how one how one does that. Well, perfect. Um, so we just want to thank you, Chris, for coming in talking to us about you know labor policy and the role of labor uh, and, and the future of uncertainty uh, within that. So we appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com our Twitter at GP Policy Review or our Facebook GPP Review. Thank you.